Act One of the Notorious Mrs. Ebsmith by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dramatis Personae Agnes Ebsmith, read by Eva Davis. Lucas Cleave, read by T. L. Broughton. Act One and Two and lucas cleave read by phone act three and four sybil cleave read by lian yao sir sandford cleave read by rob board the duke of st alford's read by thomas peter mrs gertrude thorpe read by t j burns reverend amos winterfield read by roger moline sir george broderick read by nemo dr kirk read by todd fortune a man-servant read by alan mapstone antonio poppi venetian servant read by francesco carzedda nella venetian servant read by sonia hefseba a lady's maid read by caroline stage directions read by larry wilson the scene is laid in venice first at the palazzo arcanati a lodging house on the grand canal afterwards in an apartment on the campo sant bartolomeo the first act the scene is a room in the palazzo arcanati on the grand canal venice the room itself is beautiful in its decayed grandeur but the furnishings and hangings are either tawdry or meretricious or avowedly modern the three windows at the back open on to a narrow covered balcony or loggia and through them can be seen the west side of the canal between recessed double doors on either side of the room is a fireplace out of use and a marble mantelpiece but a tiled stove is used for a wood fire breakfast things are laid on the table the sun streams into the room. Antonio Popi and Nella, two Venetian servants, with a touch of the picturesque in their attire, are engaged in clearing the breakfast table. Nella, turning her head. Ascolta. Listen. Una gondola allo scalo. A gondola at our steps. They open the center window, go out onto the balcony, and look down below. La signora Torpe the signora thorpe con suo fratello with her brother antonio calling buon di signor winterfield e dio la benedica good day signor winterfield the blessing of god be upon you nella calling buon di signora la madonna passista good day signora may the virgin have you in her keeping antonio returning to the room Noi siamo in ritardo di tutta questa mattina we are behindhand with everything this morning nella following him ah è vero that is true antonio bustling about la stufa the stove nella throwing wood into the stove che tu sia benedetta per ammentarmelo questi inglesi non si contentano del sole bless you for remembering it these english are not content with the sun 
leaving only a vase of flowers upon the table they hurry out with the breakfast things at the same moment fortune a manservant enters showing in mrs thorpe and the rev amos winterfield gertrude thorpe is a pretty frank-looking young woman of about seven-and-twenty she is in mourning and has sorrowful eyes and a complexion that is too delicate but natural cheerfulness and brightness are seen through all amos is about forty big burly gruff he is untidily dressed and has a pipe in his hand fortune is carrying a pair of freshly cleaned tan-colored boots upon boot trees now fortune you ought to have told us downstairs that dr kirk is with mrs cleave come away gertie mrs cleave can't want to be bored with us just now mrs cleave give her orders she is always to be bored with madame thorpe and mr winterfield ha ha gertrude smiling fortune besides the doctors will go in half a minute you see doctors what is there another doctor with dr kirk the great physician sir broderick sir george broderick amos doesn't mr cleave feel so well oh yes but mrs cleave happened to read in a newspaper that sir george broderick was in florence for the park the easter sir broderick was mr cleave's doctor in london mrs cleave tell me so he is acquainted with mr cleave's inside ho ho mr cleave's constitution fortune excuse madame therefore mrs cleave she telegraphed for sir broderick to come to venice to consult with dr kirk i suppose fortune listening here is the doctors dr kirk enters followed by sir george broderick kirk is a shabby snuff-taking old gentleman blunt but kind sir george on the contrary is scrupulously neat in his dress and has a suave professional manner fortune withdraws good morning mr winterfield to gertrude how do you do my dear you're getting some color into your pretty face i'm glad to see to sir george mr winterfield sir george broderick sir george and amos shake hands kirk to sir george mrs thorpe sir george shake hands with gertrude sir george and i started life together in london years ago now he finds me here in venice well we can't all win the race eh my dear old friend to gertrude mr cleave has been telling me mr thorpe how exceedingly kind you and your brother have been to him during his illness oh mr cleave exaggerates our little services i've done nothing nor i now my dear dr kirk you weren't in florence with us you're only a tale-bearer well i've excellent authority for my story of a young woman who volunteered to share the nursing of an invalid at a time when she herself stood greatly in need of being nursed nonsense to sir george 
You know Amos, my big brother over there. Amos and I struck up an acquaintance with Mr. and Mrs. Cleve at Florence, at the Hotel d'Italia, and occasionally one of us would give Mr. Cleve his dose, while poor Mrs. Cleve took a little rest or drive. But positively, that's all. You don't tell us. I've nothing more to tell, except that I'm awfully fond of Mrs. Cleve. Oh, if you once get my sister on the subject of Mrs. Cleve. Taking up a newspaper. Gertrude to Sir George. Yes, I always say that if I were a man searching for a wife, I should be inclined to base my ideal on Mrs. Cleve. Sir George edging away towards Kirk with a surprised, uncomfortable smile. Oh, uh, really? You conceive a different ideal, Sir George? Oh. Well, well, Sir George, perhaps Sir George has heard that Mrs. Cleve holds regrettable opinions on some points. If so, he may feel surprised that a parson's sister. Oh, I don't share all Mrs. Cleve's views or sympathize with them, of course, but they succeed only in making me sad and sorry. Mrs. Cleve's opinions don't stop me from loving the gentle, sweet woman admiring her for her patient absorbing devotion to her husband wondering at the beautiful stillness with which she seems to glide through life amos putting down the newspaper to sir george and kirk i told you so to gertrude gertrude i'm sure sir george and dr kirk want to be left together for a few minutes gertrude going up to the window i'll sun myself on the balcony I'll go and buy some tobacco. To Gertrude. Don't be long, Gertie. Nodding to Sir George and Kirk. Good morning. They return his nod and he goes out. Gertrude on the balcony. Dr. Kirk, I've heard what doctor's consultations consist of. After looking at the pictures, you talk about whist. She closes the windows and sits outside. Kirk producing his snuff box. Ha <laughs> ha! why this lady and her brother evidently haven't any suspicion of the actual truth my dear kirk kirk taking snuff not the slightest the woman made a point of being extremely explicit with you you tell me yes she was plain enough with me at our first meeting she said doctor i want you to know so and so and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Really? Well, it certainly isn't fair of Cleve and his, his associate to trick decent people like Mrs. Thorpe and her brother. Good gracious, the brother's a clergyman, too. The rector of some dull hole in the north of England. Really? A bachelor. This Mrs. Thorpe keeps house for him. She's a widow. Really? A widow of a captain in the army. Poor thing. She's lately lost her only child and can't get over it. Indeed. Really? Really? But about Cleve now. He had Roman fever of rather severe type. In November. And then that fool of a bickerstaff at Rome allowed the woman to move him to Florence too soon. And there he had a relapse. However, 
when she brought him on here the man was practically well the difficulty being to convince him of the fact eh? a highly strung emotional creature you've hit him i've known him from his childhood are you still giving him anything a little quinine to humor him exactly looking at his watch where is she where is she i've promised to take my wife shopping in the Matria this morning by the by kirk i must talk scandal i find this is rather an odd circumstance whom do you think i got a bow from as i passed through the hall of the danielli last night kirk grunts and shakes his head the duke of st alfred's kirk taking snuff ah i suppose you're in with a lot of swells now broderick no no you don't understand me the duke is this young fellow's uncle by marriage his grace married a sister of lady cleves of cleves mother you know oh this looks as if the family are trying to put a finger in the pie the duke may be here by mere chance still as you say it does look lowering his voice as kirk eyes an opening door who's that the woman agnes enters she moves firmly but noiselessly a placid woman with a sweet low voice her dress is plain to the verge of coarseness her face which has little color is at the first glance wholly unattractive agnes looking from one to the other i thought you would send for me perhaps to sir george what do you say about him one moment pointing to the balcony mrs thorpe excuse me she goes to the window and opens it oh mrs cleve entering the room am i in the way you are never that my dear run along to my room i'll call you in a minute or two gertrude nods and goes to the door take off your hat and sit with me for a while i'll stay for a bit but this hat doesn't take off she goes out agnes to sir george and kirk yes you're glad to be able to give a most favourable report i may say that mr cleve has never appeared to be in better health agnes drawing a deep breath he will be very much cheered by what you say sir george bowing stiffly i'm glad his illness left him with a morbid irrational impression that he would never be his former self again a nervous man recovering from a scare i've helped remove that impression i believe thank you we have a troublesome perhaps a hard time before us we both need all our health and spirits turning her head listening lucas lucas enters the room he is a handsome intellectual-looking young man of about eight-and-twenty lucas to agnes excitedly have you heard what they say of me agnes smiling yes how good of you sir george to break up your little holiday for the sake of an anxious fidgety fellow to agnes isn't it sir george has rendered us a great service lucas going to kirk brightly yes and proved how ungrateful i've been to you doctor don't apologize people who don't know when they're well are the mainstay of my profession 
offering a snuff-box. Here. Lucas takes a pinch of snuff, laughingly. Agnes in a low voice to Sir George. He has been terribly hipped at times. Taking up the vase of flowers from the table. Your visit will have made him another man. She goes to a table, puts down the vase upon the tray, and commences to cut and arrange the fresh flowers she finds there. Lucas, seeing that Agnes is out of hearing, Excuse me, cook, just for one moment. To Sir George. Sir George. Kirk joins Agnes. You still go frequently to Great Cumberland Place. Your mother's gout has been rather stubborn lately. Very likely she and my brother Sanford will get to hear of your visit to me here. In that case, you'll be questioned pretty closely, naturally. My position is certainly a little delicate. Oh, you may be perfectly open with my people as to my present mode of life. Only... He motions Sir George to be seated. They sit facing each other. Only I want you to hear me declare again plainly. Looking towards Agnes. But for the care and devotion of that good woman over there, but for the solace of that woman's companionship, I should have been dead months ago. I should have died, raving in my awful bedroom on the ground floor of that foul Roman hotel. Malarial fever, of course. Doctors don't admit, do they, that it's possible for strong men to die of miserable marriages. And yet I was dying in Rome, I truly believe from my bitter, crushing disappointment, from the consciousness of my wretched, irretrievable. Fortune enters, carrying Lucas, hat, gloves, overcoat, and silk wrap, and upon a salver, a bottle of medicine, and a glass. Lucas sharply. Quietiel, Fortune. Sir, you have an appointment. Lucas rising. At the Danielli, at eleven. Is it so late? Fortune places the things upon the table. Lucas puts the wrap around his throat. Agnes goes to him and arranges it for him solicitously. Sir George rising. I have to meet Lady Broderick at the Piazzetta. Let me take you in my gondola. Thanks. Delighted. Agnes to Sir George. I would rather Lucas went in the house gondola. I know its cushions are dry. May he take you to the Piazzetta? Sir George, a little stiffly. Certainly. Agnes to Fortune. Mettez les cousins dans la gondole. Bien, madame. Fortune goes out. Agnes begins to measure a dose of medicine. Sir George to Agnes. Ah, uh, I, ah. Uh... Lucas putting on his gloves. Agnes, Sir George. Agnes turning to Sir George, the bottle and glass in her hands. Yes. Sir George constrainedly. We always make a point of acknowledging the importance of nursing as an aid to medical treatment. I, I'm sure Mr. Cleve owes you much in that respect. Thank you. Sir George to Lucas. I have to discharge my gondola. You'll find me at the steps, Cleve. Agnes shifts the medicine bottle from one hand to the other, so that her right hand may be free, but Sir George simply bows in a formal way and moves towards the door.
You are coming with us, Kirk? Yes. Do you mind seeing that I'm not robbed by my gondolier? He goes out. Agnes giving the medicine to Lucas undisturbed. Here, dear. Kirk to Agnes. May I pop in tonight for my game of chess? Do, doctor. I shall be very pleased. Kirk shaking her hand in a marked way. Thank you. He follows Sir George. Agnes looking after him. Liberal little man. She has Lucas' overcoat in her hand. A small pen and ink drawing of a woman's hand drops from one of the pockets. They pick it up together. Isn't that the sketch you made of me in Florence? Lucas replacing it in the coat pocket. Yes. You are carrying it about with you. I slipped it into my pocket, thinking it might interest the Duke. Agnes assisting him with his overcoat. Surely I am too obnoxious in the abstract for your uncle to entertain such a detail as a portrait. It struck me that it might serve to correct certain preconceived notions of my people's. Mm, images of a beautiful temptress with peach-blossom cheeks and stained hair? That's what I mean. They suspect a decline of taste on my part. Of that sort. Goodbye, dear. Is this mission of the Duke of St. Olfert's the final attempt to part us, I wonder? Angrily, her voice hardening. Why should they harass and disturb you as they do? Lucas, kissing her. Nothing disturbs me now that I know that I am strong and well. Besides, everybody will soon tire of being shocked. Even conventional morality must grow breathless in the chase. He leaves her. She opens the other door and calls. Mrs. Thorpe, I'm alone now. She goes on to the balcony through the center window and looks down below. Gertrude enters and joins her on the balcony. How well your husband is looking. Sir George Broderick pronounces him quite recovered. Isn't that splendid? Waving her hand and calling. Buongiorno, signor Cleve. Como molto meglio voi state? Leaving the balcony laughing. <laughs> My Italian. Agnes waves finally to the gondola below, returns to the room, and slips her arm through Gertrude's. Two whole days since I've seen you. They've been two of my bad days, dear. Agnes looking into her face. All right now. Oh, God is in his heaven this morning. When the sun's out, I feel that my little boy's bed in Catholic Cemetery is warm and cozy. Agnes patting Gertrude's hand. Ah. Uh. The weather's the same all over Europe, according to the papers. Do you think it's really going to last? To me, these chilly, showery nights are terrible. You know, I still tuck my child up at night time, still have my last peep at him before going to my own bed. <sighs> and it's awful to listen to these cold rains drip, drip upon that little green coverlet of his. She goes and stands by the window, silently. This isn't strong of you, dear Mrs. Thorpe. You mustn't. You mustn't. Agnes brings the tray with the cut flowers to the nearer table. Calmly and methodically, she resumes trimming the stalks. Ah, oh, you're quite right. That's over. Now then, I'm going to gabble for five minutes gaily. 
settling herself comfortably in an armchair what jolly flowers you've got there what have you been doing with yourself amos took me to the cafe quadri yesterday to lay breakfast to cheer me up oh i have something to say to you at the cafe at the next table to ours there were three english people two men and a girl home from india i gathered one of the men was looking out of the window quizzing folks walking in the piazza and suddenly he caught sight of your husband agnes hands pause in their work i do believe that's lucas cleave he said and then the girl had a peep and said certainly it is and the man said i must find out where he's stopping if minerva is with him you must call who's minerva said the second man minerva is mrs lucas cleave the girl said it's a pet name he married a chum of mine a daughter of sir john stainings a year or so after i went out excuse me dear do these people really know you and your husband or were they talking nonsense agnes takes the vase of faded flowers goes out to the balcony and empties the contents of the vase into the canal then she stands by the window her back towards gertrude no they evidently know mr cleave your husband never calls you by that pet name of yours why is it you haven't told me you're the daughter of admiral stainings mrs thorpe gertrude warmly oh i must say what i mean i have often pulled myself up short in my gossips with you conscious of a sort of wall between us agnes comes slowly from the window somehow i feel now that you haven't in the least made a friend of me i'm hurt it's stupid of me i can't help it agnes after a moment's pause i am not the lady those people were speaking of yesterday not mr cleave is no longer with his wife he has left her left his wife like yourself i am a widow i don't know whether you have ever heard my name ebb smith gertrude stares at her blankly i beg your pardon sincerely i never meant to conceal my true position such a course is opposed to every true principle of mind but i grew so attached to you in florence and well it was contemptibly weak i'll never do such a thing again she goes back to the table and commences to refill the vase with the fresh flowers when you say that mr cleave has left his wife i suppose you mean to tell me that you have taken her place yes i mean that gertrude rises and walks to the door gertrude at the door you knew that i could not speak to you after hearing this i thought it almost certain that you would not after a moment's irresolution gertrude returns and stands by the settee i can hardly believe you i should like you to hear more than just the bare fact gertrude drumming on the back of the settee <sighs> why don't you tell me more you were going you know gertrude sitting i won't go quite like that please tell me agnes calmly well did you ever read of john thorold jack thorold the demagogue gertrude shakes her head i dare say not john thorold once a schoolmaster was my father in my time he used to write for the two or three so-called inflammatory journals and hold forth in small lecture halls occasionally even from the top of a wooden stool in the park 
upon trade and labor questions, division of wealth and the rest of it. He believed in nothing that people who go to church are credited with believing in Mrs. Thorpe. His scheme for the readjustment of things was force. His pet doctrine, the ultimate healthy healing that follows the surgery of revolution. But to me, he was the gentlest creature imaginable, and I was very fond of him in spite of his, as I then thought, strange ideas. Strange ideas. Many of them luckily don't sound quite so irrational today. Gertrude under her breath. Oh! My home was a wretched one. If Dad was violent out of the house, Mother was violent enough in it. With her, it was rage, sulk, storm from morning till night, till one day Father turned a deaf ear to Mother and died in his bed. That was my first intimate experience of the horrible curse that falls upon so many. Curse? The curse of unhappy marriage. Though really I'd looked on little else all my life. Most of our married friends were cursed in a like way, and I remember taking an oath, when I was a mere child, that nothing should ever push me over into the choked-up seething pit. <laughs> Fool! When I was nineteen, I was gazing like a pet sheep into a man's eyes, and one morning I was married at St. Andrew's Church in Holborn to Mr. Ebsmith, a barrister. In church? Yes, in church. In church. In spite of father's unbelief and mother's indifference, at the time I married, I was as simple, I and my heart, as devout as any girl in a parsonage. The other thing hadn't soaked into me. Whenever I could escape from our stifling rooms at home and slam the front door behind me, the air blew away uncertainty and skepticism. I seemed only to have to take a long, deep breath to be full of hope and faith, and it was like this till that man married me. Of course, I guess your marriage was an unfortunate one. It lasted eight years. For about twelve months, he treated me like a woman in a harem, for the rest of the time like a beast of burden. <sighs> when I think of it... Wiping her brow with a handkerchief. Phew. It changed you? Oh, yes, it changed me. You spoke of yourself just now as a widow. He's dead? He died on our wedding day. The eighth anniversary. You were free then. Free to begin again. Eh? Looking at Gertrude. Yes, but you don't begin to believe all over again. She gathers up the stalks of the flowers from the tray and kneeling crams them into the stove. However, this is an old story. I'm 33 now. Gertrude hesitatingly. You and... Mr. Cleave? We've known each other since last November. No longer. Six years of my life unaccounted for, eh? Well, for a couple of years or so, I was lecturing. Lecturing? Ah, I'd become an out-and-out -out child of my father by that time. Spouting, perhaps you'd call it. Standing on identical little platforms he used to speak from. Lashing abuses with my tongue, as he had done. Oh, and I was fond, too, of warning women. Against what? Falling into the pit. Marriage? The chalked-up, seething pit. Until I found my bones almost through my skin and my voice too weak to travel across a room. From what cause? Starvation, my dear. So, after lying in a hospital for a month or two, 
i took up nursing for a living last november i was sent for by dr bickerstaff to go through to rome to look after a young man who'd broken down there and who declined to send for his friends my patient was mr cleave taking up the tray and that's where his fortunes join mine she crosses the room and puts the tray upon the cabinet and yet judging from what that girl said yesterday mr cleave married quite recently less than three years ago men don't suffer as patiently as women in many respects his marriage story is my own reversed the man in place of the woman i endured my hell though he broke the gates of his i have often seen mr cleve's name in the papers his future promised to be brilliant didn't it agnes tidying the table folding the newspaper etc there's a great career for him still in parliament now no he abandons that and devotes himself to writing we shall write much together urging our views on this subject of marriage we shall have to be poor i expect but we shall be content content quite content don't judge us by my one piece of cowardly folly in keeping the truth from you mrs thorpe indeed it's our great plan to live the life we have mapped out for ourselves fearlessly openly faithful to each other helpful to each other so long as we remain together but tell me you don't know how i how i have liked you tell me if mr cleve's wife divorces him will he marry you no 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 i haven't made you quite understand lucas and i don't desire to marry in your sense but you are devoted to each other thoroughly what is that the meaning of for as long as you are together you would go your different ways if ever you found that one of you was making the other unhappy i do mean that we remain together only to help to heal to console why should men and women be so eager to grant each other the power of wasting life that is what marriage gives the right to destroy years and years of life and the right once given it attracts attracts we've both suffered from it so many rich years out of my life have been squandered by it and out of his life so much force energy spent in battling with the shrew the termagant he has now fled from strength never to be replenished never to be repaid wasted wasted your legal marriage with him might not bring further miseries too late we have done with marriage we distrust it we are not now among those who regard marriage as indispensable to union we have done with it gertrude advancing to her you know that it would be impossible for me if i would do so to deceive my brother as to all this why of course dear gertrude looking at her watch amos must be wondering run away then gertrude crosses quickly to the door gertrude retracing a step or two shall i see you oh agnes shaking her head ah uh. gertrude going to her constrainedly when amos and i have talked this over perhaps perhaps no i fear not come my dear friend with a smile give me a shake of the hand gertrude taking her hand 
what you've told me is dreadful looking into agnes face and yet you're not a wicked woman kissing agnes in case we don't meet again <sighs> the women separate quickly looking towards the door as lucas enters lucas shaking hands with gertrude how do you do mrs thorpe i've just had a whiff of the hand from your brother where is he on his back in a gondola with a pipe in his mouth as usual gazing skywards going on to the balcony he's within hail gertrude goes quickly to the door followed by agnes there by the palazzo's Farsa. he re-enters the room gertrude has disappeared he is going towards the door let me get hold of him mrs thorpe agnes standing before lucas quietly she knows lucas dear does she she overheard some gossip at the cafe quadri yesterday and began questioning me so i told her lucas taking off his coat adieu to them then eh agnes assisting him adieu i intended to write the brother directly when they had left venice to explain your describing me as mrs cleave at the hotel in florence helped to lead us into this after we move from here i must always be frankly mrs ebbsmith these were decent people you and she had formed quite an attachment yes she places his coat etc on a chair then fetches her work-basket from the cabinet there's something of the man in your nature agnes i've anathematized my womanhood often enough she sits at the table taking out her work composedly not that every man possesses the power you've acquired the power of going through life with compressed lips agnes looking up smiling apropos these people this woman you've been so fond of you see them shrink away with utmost composure agnes threading a needle you forget dear that you and i have prepared ourselves for a good deal of this sort of thing certainly but at the moment one must take care that the regret lasts no longer than a moment have you seen your uncle a glimpse he hadn't long risen he adds sluggishness to other vices then lucas lighting a cigarette he greeted me through six inches of open door his toilet has its mysteries a stormy interview the reverse he grasped my hand warmly declared i looked the picture of health and said it was evident that i had been most admirably nursed agnes frowning that's a strange utterance but he's an eccentric isn't he no man has ever been quite satisfied as to whether his oddities are ingrained or affected no man what about women oh they have had opportunities of closer observation <laughs> and they report nothing they became curiously reticent agnes scornfully as she is cutting a thread these noblemen lucas taking a packet of letters from his pocket finally he presented me with these expressed a hope that he'd see much of me during the week and dismissed me with a fervent god bless you agnes surprised he remains here then it seems so what are those dear the duke has made himself the bearer of some letters from friends i've only glanced at them 
reproaches, appeals. Yes, I understand. He sits looking through the letters impatiently, then tearing them up and throwing the pieces upon the table. Lord Warminster, my godfather, my dear boy, for God's sake. Tearing up the letter and reading another. Sir Charles Littlecoat, your brilliant future blasted. Another letter. Lord Froome, promise of a useful political career unfulfilled, cannot an old friend. Another letter. Edith Hatsbury, I didn't notice a woman had honoured me. In an undertone. Edie. Slipping the letter into his pocket and opening another. Jack Brophy, your great career. Major Leet, your career. Destroying the rest of the letters without reading them. My career, my career. That's the chorus, evidently. Well, there goes my career. She lays her work aside and goes to him. Your career? Pointing to the destroyed letters. Uh, true, that one is over. But there's the other, you know. Ours. Lucas touching her hand. Yes, yes, still. It's just a little saddening, the saying goodbye. Disturbing the scraps of paper. To all of this. Saddening, dear. Why, this political career of yours. Think what it would have been at best. Accident of birth sent you to the wrong side of the house. Influence of family would have always kept you there. Lucas, uh, partly to himself. But I made my mark. I did make my mark. Supporting the party that retards, the party that preserves for the rich, palters with the poor. Pointing to the letters again. Oh, there's not much to mourn for there. Still, it was success. Success. I was talked about, written about, as a coming man, the coming man. How many coming men has one known? Where on earth do they all go to? Ah, yes, but I allowed for the failure, and carefully set myself to discover the causes of them. And as I put my fingers upon the causes and examined them, I congratulated myself and said, Well, I haven't that weak point in my armor, or that. And Agnes, at last, I was fool enough to imagine that I had no weak point, none whatsoever. It was weak enough to believe that. I couldn't foresee that I was doomed to pay the price all nervous men pay for success, that the greater my success became, the more cancer-like grew the fear of never being able to continue it, to excel it, that the triumph of today was always to be the torture of tomorrow. Oh, Agnes, the agony of success to a nervous, sensitive man, the dismal apprehension that fills his life and gives each victory a voice to cry out, Hear, hear! Bravo, bravo, bravo! But this is to be your last. You'll never overtop it. Ha, yes, I soon found the weak spot in my armor. The need of constant encouragement. Constant reminder of my powers. Taking her hand. The need of that subtle sympathy which is sacrificing unselfish 
woman alone possesses the secret of. Rising. Well, my very weakness might have been a source of greatness if, three years ago, it had been to such a woman that I had bound myself. A woman of your disposition, instead of two. Ah! She lays her hand upon his arm soothingly. Yes, yes. Taking her in his arms. I know I have such a companion now. Yes, now. You must be everything to me, Agnes. A double faculty, as it were. When my confidence in myself is shaken, you must try to keep the consciousness of my poor powers alive in me. I shall not fail you in that, Lucas. And yet, whenever disturbing recollections come uppermost, when I catch myself mourning for those lost opportunities of mine, it is your love that must grant me oblivion. Kissing her upon the lips. Your love. She makes no response, and after a pause gently releases herself and retreats a step or two. Lucas, his eyes following her. Agnes, you seem to be changing towards me, growing colder to me. At times you seem positively to shrink from me. I don't understand it. Yesterday I thought I saw you look at me as if I frightened you. Lucas, Lucas, dear, for some weeks now, I wanted to say this to you. What? Don't you think that such a union as ours would be much braver, much more truly courageous, if it could but be, be... If it could be what? Agnes, averting her eyes. Devoid of passion, if passion had no share in it. Surely this comes a little late, Agnes, between you and me. Agnes, leaning upon the back of a chair, staring before her and speaking in a low, steady voice. What has been was inevitable, I suppose. Still, we have hardly yet set foot upon the path we've agreed to follow. It is not too late for us, in our own lives, to pit the highest interpretation upon that word, love. Think of the inner sustaining power it would give us. We agree to go through the world together, preaching the lesson taught us by our experiences. We cry out to all people, look at us, man and woman who are in the bondage of neither law nor ritual, linked simply by mutual trust, man and wife, but something better than man and wife, friends, but even something better than friends. I say there is that which is noble, finely defiant in the future we have mapped out for ourselves, if only... If only. Yes. Agnes turning from him. If only it could be free from passion. Lucas in a low voice. Yes, but is that possible? Agnes in the same tone, watching him askance, a frightened look in her eyes. Why not? Young man and woman, you and love? Scarcely upon this earth, my dear Agnes, such a life as you have pictured. I say it can be. It can be. Fortune enters carrying a letter upon a salver, 
and a beautiful bouquet of white flowers. He hands the note to Lucas. Lucas taking the note, glancing at Agnes. Okay. To Fortune, pointing to the bouquet. Qu'avez-vous là? Ah, oh, excuse. Presenting the bouquet to Agnes. With compliments. Agnes takes the bouquet wonderingly. Tell madame, the Duke of St. Ophert, bring it in person, he says. Lucas opening the note. Estia party? He did not get out of his gondola. Bien. Fortune withdraws. Lucas reading the note aloud. While brushing my hair, my dear boy, I became possessed of a strong desire to meet the lady with whom you are now improving the shining hour why the devil shouldn't i if i want to without prejudice as my lawyer says let me turn up this afternoon and chat pleasantly to her of shakespeare also the musical glasses pray hand her this flag of truce i mean my poor bunch of flowers and believe me yours with a touch of gout St. Olfers. Indignantly crushing the note. Ah. Agnes frowning at the flowers. A taste of their oddities, I suppose. He is simply making sport of us. Going on to the balcony and looking out. There he is. Damn that smile of his. Where? She joins him. With the two gondoliers. Why? That's a beautiful face. How strange. Lucas drawing her back into the room. Come away, he's looking up at us. Are you sure he sees us? He did. He will want an answer. She deliberately flings the bouquet over the balcony into the canal, then returns to the table and picks up her work. Lucas looking out again cautiously. He throws his head back and laughs heartily. Re-entering the room. Oh, of course. His policy is to attempt to laugh me out of my resolves. They send him here merely to laugh at me. To laugh at me. Coming to Agnes angrily. Laugh at me. He must be a man of small resources. Threading her needle. It is so easy to mock. End of Act One